So we've completed the first day of the retreat. Congratulations. And the theme that will be underlying the series of Dharma teachings this 10 days is the theme of liberation. Inner freedom. And here you spend a day, beautiful autumn day, the moon rose just now. Temperature was pretty sweet out there. Sitting, walking, listening. A story for you. Ananda, who was the attendant to the Blessed One, the Buddha, having been sent on a mission, returned through a village and passed by a well. And seeing Pakati, a young outcast woman, an untouchable woman, asked her for water to drink. Pakati said, O monk, I am too lowly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask any service of me, lest your holiness be contaminated. And Ananda replied, I ask not for your caste, but for water. And the woman's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda water to drink. He thanked her and went away, and then she followed at a distance. Having heard Ananda was a disciple of the Buddha, she went to him and said, Help me, let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells, so that I may see him and care for him for I've come to love Ananda. And the Blessed One understood the emotions of her heart and said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you've seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others. And though you are born of what is called low caste, Pakati, you will be a model for noble men and noble women. Swerve not from the path of justice and righteousness, and you will outshine the royal glory of kings and queens. So Buddhist texts begin, certain of them, with the phrase, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the blessed one, of the awakened ones, do not forget who you really are. There's an invitation to remember your original dignity and freedom and liberation that no one can take from you and that is independent of the circumstances or what a culture might say about you. Now, here was Bhakati, and if you've traveled to a place like India where caste is still, in many ways, uh, alive and terrible. Um, It would be like traveling in South Africa during apartheid, maybe worse in certain ways, because an untouchable or a lowest caste person is not allowed to even have their shadow fall on the food or the water of a Brahmin caste, or it's considered impure. If you can imagine being a child and being born and looking around saying, here I am, and they say, no, no, you're, there's something wrong with you from the beginning. And what the Buddha taught thousands of years ago, so compassionately and and with so much dedication, was that each human being carries nobility and dignity and the seeds of liberation, the possibility of a free heart, no matter where you are, no matter what your circumstance. Now, admittedly, your circumstance today is a relatively good one at Spirit Rock, at least outwardly. Um, Bonnie used the phrase, first world happiness in a conversation today. We have food, water, basic necessities, health, well-being, and so forth. But 
you might have also noticed as you sat and walked through the day that there were stories, <clears throat> just as Picati had a story about her caste or her unworthiness, you may have noticed that you have stories about yourself. Anybody notice that? Don't raise your hand, it's okay. And you limit yourself by the beliefs of those stories and thoughts and conditioning. And there you are walking, as I remember somebody at our center at IMS, walking back and forth in this beautiful, quiet walking room, and the person near them was wearing boots and huffing and puffing like the little engine that could, and this person just became really angry. How could they make so much noise? I was going to have a quiet walking, you know. And they just kept walking and walking, and finally she came in at the end and said, you know, at first I was really upset, and then I realized the upset wasn't the sound of his boots squeaking on the floor or the or the down, noisy coat he was wearing, the suffering was in my own mind. And when I could hear it just as sound, instead of the whole story I made about him, I realized I was so much more free than I thought I was. In the Satipatthana Sutra, which is the Buddha's text invitation to mindfulness, He writes, my friends, there is a most wonderful way for living beings to realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the path of wisdom and compassion, and realize nirvana. And what is this? It is the four establishments of mindfulness, or the foundations. It is the four ways to establish awareness. There's a most wonderful way to find liberation. Now, why should something so simple as mindfulness offer this great promise of liberation? Because in the moment, any moment, that you rest in mindfulness, you become not caught in or reactive to or identified with your experience. Instead, you become the awareness, the spacious awareness, the loving awareness that says, oh yes, here's a story, here's the thought, here's the sound, here's the actual experience. And in that very moment, instead of being caught in a story about yourself, as Picati was, or as you might have been during the day, or someone else, Instead of being in the story, you come into the reality of the moment with a wholeness and dignity and freedom that is your birthright. Mindfulness has other qualities. It sees clearly. It seems, says the Buddha, that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. Let's just kind of get down to business here for a moment. It's a really strange situation you find yourself in, isn't it? Because everything seems so solid and real when we're in the story about it and when we feel we know who we are and how the world goes and so forth. And then again, here's the words of the Buddha. Suppose a man or woman who was not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges as they floated along and watched and examined them carefully. And as they did, they would appear empty, unreal, insubstantial. In exactly the same way does the meditator behold the bodily phenomena that arise and pass, the feelings, perceptions, thoughts, states of consciousness, And watching them and examining them carefully, they appear as they are, empty, insubstantial, void, and without a self. And it's not some great mysterious thing that you have to climb in the Himalayas to find. Your thoughts appear, and then what happens? They disappear. Your emotions arise, and you get angry or sad or upset or delighted or joyful or frightened, 
and there you are in the middle of being frightened, and then all of a sudden, wonder what they're going to have for lunch, right? The mind has no pride at all. It will just go to something else. And you see that the experiences arise and pass, and they are ungraspable and ephemeral. And there then becomes a shift of identity from the self that you've made that feels solid and you've got your story and you know who you are, from that to the space of awareness itself. Now, we live in a society that doesn't want you to know this. There's a wonderful book written a couple or a few decades ago by Alan Watts called The Taboo Against Knowing Who You Really Are. And sometimes our modern society, Ann Wilson Shape describes it as the addicted society. The best adjusted person in modern society is the person who's not dead and not alive, just numb, a zombie. If you're dead, you're not able to work for the society, but if you're fully alive, you're constantly saying no to many of the problems of the society, the racism, the polluted environment, the nuclear threat, the arms race, unsafe water, carcinogenic foods. Thus, it's in the the interest of modern consumer society to promote those things that take the edge off, keep us busy with our fixes, and slightly numbed out and zombie-like. In this way, the whole modern consumer society itself functions as an addict. This from the cover of the Wall Street Journal. So young and so many pills. The 45 million children who are on medicine for ADHD and antidepressants and so forth. And it's not that those medicines don't have their place and at times can be really important and helpful. But what are we doing to children, to ourselves? And anybody who pays attention can see that outer development, all the amazing nanotechnology and biotechnology and computers and internet and you know smartphones and so forth, are not going to stop environmental destruction, continuing warfare, continuing racism. The outer developments have to be matched by an inner transformation of consciousness. It's as if we become wildly successful outwardly, and as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff put it, we are a nation of nuclear giants and ethical infants. That we haven't developed the awakening, the morality, the dignity, the capacity of our humanity to live as a species on the earth with wisdom. So here you are, you come on retreat. I'm just laying out the problems for the moment. And you know it, this isn't like news to you, but it's worth laying out because it brings a sense of both some motivation and maybe why it's difficult. You take your seat halfway between heaven and earth in this human form under your own tree of enlightenment. And what you've come for, yes, you can lower your stress or your shoulders or reduce the tension in your body or calm yourself in certain ways. And those are all good or healing and they have their value. But there's something bigger and that is the opening to mystery, to the mystery of your human life and your incarnation. How did you get in there, right? little patches of fur, whatever's left of it, in certain places, right? Eyeballs. They're really bizarre if you look. They are. Come on. Nipples. You know, a hole on under the body in which you regularly stuff dead plants and animals and glug them down through the tube, right? Tongues. They're weird. Teeth, these bones that hang down that you grind up the food with. Vestigial tail, claws that are left, right? Or, if that's not strange enough, pay attention the next time you're making love. It's a wonderful thing to do. 
and it's bizarre. And this is how we make new people. You know, a little squirt, a few cells here and there, one way or the other. I mean, how did you get in there? And who are you? Are you this body? What was born into this life? So we have this mystery. And when we stop and take a look, just as seeing the moon rise and the turning of the seasons, it's not far away. It's, it's right here. When you look in the mirror, you notice you've aged, right? More wrinkles, drooping, sagging, whatever it does. Um, graying, losing, stuff, aging happens. But the weird thing is that you don't necessarily feel older. I like to talk about this. And that's because, it's a, it's a really interesting moment, it's because some part of you recognizes that the body has aged, but you, but you don't feel older because the mind doesn't age. Yes, you have experience and history and so forth, but consciousness itself doesn't exist in time. The body's born and it has its little baby size and its medium size and its teenager size and its you know adult size and its growing and shrinking, whatever it does. But that witnessing that says, oh, hmm, middle age, oh, past middle age now, oh, that's interesting, you know. There's some part that looks in that mirror and sees this mystery of incarnation and knows that who you take yourself to be or who the world thinks you are is really just one level of reality. So my teacher, Ajahn Chah, became an ardent young monk in the forest tradition of Laos and Thailand, the Mekong River Valley, and spent about 10 years practicing in caves and in, with certain teachers and in um, forest groves and um, remote monasteries and had a lot of experiences. Um, things opened up for him, new understandings. So after about a decade, he went on a pilgrimage and found the greatest meditation master of the era, this other Ajahn, Ajahn Man, and went, paid his respects, and told him, here's what I've been doing. I had these visions. I dissolved the body into light. Um, I had these insights about emptiness or impermanence. I saw this. I saw my history. All these kind of things. And I had these wonderful meditations and samadhi and jhana and so forth. And when he was done, Ajahn Man shook his head and said, you've missed the point. The point is not the experiences because experiences always change. You saw it the course of the day. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant, sometimes very beautiful, sometimes painful. He said, I mean, it's like Ajahn Chah described it, it's like them going to the movies. There's a romantic comedy and a documentary and a war movie and a, and a musical comedy. And there's all these different kind of movies you can see. But at some point, Somebody crunches their popcorn too loud or you get a little bored or something. And then you look around and remember, oh, I'm in a movie. There's the light and the projector. And so Ajahn Man said to him, you've missed the point. The point is to discover to whom are these experiences happening. Turn your attention back to the one who knows, to the knowing itself, and become the witness or the witnessing to experience, and that is the gateway to liberation. Because consciousness in its, and this is pretty wild, but you were born into it, so you might as well inquire a little bit, check it out. Consciousness in its true state is clear and transparent. It knows experience, but it's unaffected by it. The same way the sky allows clouds and storms and rainbows and snow and sunshine and so forth, and it doesn't disturb the sky. Consciousness is outside of time. There actually isn't time except for our thought. It's always now. Future is a thought about something, past is a memory. It's always now. And so the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. What does it mean to live a life that feels this great dance 
from the one who knows rather than the one who's lost. To become liberated, which is the invitation of the Buddha, the foundations or or establishment of mindfulness, there's this wonderful way to liberate the heart and mind, doesn't mean to escape from your life. Zen master Suzuki Roshi puts it this way. He says, when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. So nirvana is not in the Himalayas, and it's not at the end of a long retreat. Oh, if only you could do the two-month retreat, or the three-month retreat, or the three-year retreat. I mean, those are beautiful things to do. But nirvana isn't at the end of them. When you realize the fact that everything changes. When you see the bubbles on the Ganges, the rising of thoughts and feelings and the creation of some idea of yourself and the dissolving of it in the reality of the present. When you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. Now, Neuroscience, all these 3,000 different studies and research projects and papers on mindfulness and compassion and so forth, show that as you rest in mindfulness, you have greater emotional or affect regulation, you can steady your attention and study better, Um, you extend then the telomeres that keep the cells from aging in beautiful ways. You heal more quickly. Um, there's all these, all these benefits of mindful presence. But most importantly, the Buddha says, the goal of this Dharma teaching and practice is not good deeds or making merit. It's not concentration or states, special states of mind, it's not insight or wisdom. None of these things is the goal, nor the absence of them. But the goal is the sure heart's release, the liberation of heart or spirit wherever you are, which is possible for you. I was in Hawaii, invited a couple or a few months ago by some friends who sponsored Aung San Suu Kyi to come from Burma and get a big award at the University of Hawaii and give a series of talks, partly to um, a worldwide business community that came, partly to some school um, groups that came to be with her. And really quite remarkable woman, 17 years of house arrest. And she said they never had me in prison because I never hated them. I took it as a retreat. And now that she's out for the last couple of years and ran for parliament, she has a seat in the parliament and may well run for president or prime minister in another year or two. She said, you know, it would be easy for me to remain an icon. Aung San Suu Kyi, Nobel laureate, you know, arrested and put in either prison or house arrest for all these years, kept her compassion and loving kindness Everybody sees me as this idol. She said, I could be the icon. She said, that would be easy. But I'm going to do something different now. I'm going to become a... She paused for a little effect. Politician. (laughs) And I'm going to get my hands dirty. And I'm going to talk to people you don't want me to talk to. And I'm going to make deals with people that you don't think I should be even, you know negotiating with, because I believe that if I enter into the world of politics in this way, with all the compromises that it will require, that this is the way that I can best serve my people. Kind of extraordinary to have someone say that. So it's really important to understand that liberation isn't someplace else apart from your life. She was liberated in house arrest for those years, And now she says, I will enter the world fully. And that too is a place of liberation. 
So you say, good, I'm on this 10-day retreat. I've started, I've succeeded in staying here for a whole day, sitting and walking and qigong and work meditation. What now? Well, here are some things that help as you practice or inhabit with dignity and nobility your own liberation. First, it's helpful to calm and collect the scattered mind. Not cause a concentrated or calm mind is more holy or more sacred or in the, very, in the end more liberated. The mind expands and contracts and sometimes it's quiet and sometimes it's not. But in order to see clearly, because we're so scattered, my teacher Ajahn Buddhadasa, another great forest meditation master, when asked how the modern world looked to him, he said, lost in thought. Because we're so lost, we're not connected with ourselves, we begin with the simple coming back to the breath and body. The Buddha's words, as the farmer channels water to his land, as the weaver spins her threads, as the carpenter turns his wood, so the wise learn to steady their heart and mind. And so if you look at meditation, you can see that on the surface, like the surface of water, there are waves of thoughts and emotions and stories and storms and rainbows and breezes. Underneath, around, bigger, is the space of awareness itself, like the depth of the ocean. I'm mixing my metaphors, sorry about the bad poetry. But there is a dimension of witnessing, of stillness, of silence, beneath, around, bigger than all those waves that you can come to rest in. And so you use your breath not in order to become a good breather. You do that fine already, thank you. But to help connect the body and mind so that you're more present and calmer and can actually see and be with things more clearly as they are. The image, common one we've used for years, is of training the puppy. Put the puppy on the paper, sit, stay. Does the puppy stay? Not at all. Gets up, pees in the corner, you clean it up, sit, stay. And after a while, the puppy gets slowly trained. Your mind, of course, is much more difficult. Puppies are easy compared to the human mind. But nevertheless, the point isn't you don't want to beat the puppy. Puppy doesn't like it, you don't feel good. You don't want to judge yourself. You just bring the attention back repeatedly over the first few days, especially. The first few days are days of settling and calming, steadying from a pretty wild and crazy culture that we live in. And as you do, you want to start to look for the moments of calm and steadiness and well-being. It's not just to notice the waves on the surface, but if there's even a moment, one breath or half a breath, where you start to feel, oh, settled. You start to notice the mind is quiet for a moment. You start to feel your body relax in a way that's not just falling asleep, but just more present in an easy way. Treasure those moments. Rest in them, inhabit them. If anything, let them expand so that you begin to invite the quality of calm and collected and stability as part of your retreat. What else helps? Loving kindness, metta. And we'll be teaching it quite systematically from now on every day, mostly at the sitting at the end of the afternoon at five o'clock. And probably almost all of you have done some practice in a systematic way of loving kindness or compassion. The image from the Buddha in the Metta Sutra is of a mother holding her beloved, most beloved child and 
So when Bonnie began the instructions last night and she had us hold ourselves in that, so Bonnie, it was Nikki. When Nikki began the instructions last night, had us hold ourselves in that beautiful way, she was in some way also reflecting the image from the sutra on the teachings of loving kindness. Now, most of you have probably heard the famous account of a number of us teachers sitting with the Dalai Lama 20-some years ago and um, asking him, what do you do about all the self-hatred and self-judgment and shame and self-criticism? And him being really confused by the word self-hatred, he couldn't understand it. And going back and forth with Thupten Jimba's translator in Tibetan, what does this mean? After a while, finally getting it, and looking up and saying, but this is a mistake. You know, why would anyone do that? And then he asked, well, how many of you in this room, well, it's 20 teachers or so, have experienced this self-hatred or this self-criticism? You know, almost every hand went up. He said, oh, yes, your culture. <laughs> Problem. <laughs> um, so we've learned over all these decades that it's critical that mindfulness from the beginning be wedded with loving-kindness. The spirit of kindness or compassion or non-judging or love basically means that you can allow the opening of body and mind without um, fighting against it, without judging it, with with a care. And so the liberation is not just a pure mind or a quiet mind, but it's an open heart. To be liberated is to be free to love where you are. I'm going to read a poem. This sort of is in, in partly in homage to Matthew's great instruction on walking meditation about taking two hours to fall in love with your dance partner, which I thought was really great instruction. This is from Ellen Bass, a poet in Santa Cruz, a wonderful poet, called Gate C-22. I don't know if I'm supposed to read this at a retreat, but I will. At Gate C-22 in the Portland airport, a man in a broadband leather hat kissed a woman arriving from Orange County. They kissed and kissed and kissed. Long after the other passengers clicked the handles of their carry-ons and wheeled briskly toward the short-term parking, the couple stood there, arms wrapped around each other, like she'd just staggered off the boat at Ellis Island, like she'd been released from ICU, snapped out of a coma, survived bone cancer, made it down from Annapurna in only the clothes she was wearing. Neither of them was young. His beard was gray. She carried a few extra pounds you could imagine her saying she had to lose. But they kissed lavish kisses, like the ocean in early morning, the way it gathers and swells, sucking each rock under, swallowing it again and again. We were all watching. Passengers waiting for the delayed flight to San Jose, the stewardesses, the pilot, the aproned woman icing Cinnabons, the man selling sunglasses, We couldn't look away. We could taste the kisses crushed in our mouths. But the best part was his face. When he drew back and looked at her, his smile soft with wonder, almost as though he were a mother still open from giving birth, as your mother must have looked at you no matter what happened after. If she beat you or left you or you're lonely now, you once lay there, the vernix not yet wiped off, and someone gazed at you as you were the first sunrise seen from Earth. The whole wing of the airport hushed, all of us trying to slip into that woman's middle-aged body, her plaid Bermuda shorts, sleeveless brows, glasses, little gold hoop earrings, tilting our heads up. And I read the poem because to meditate is also an act of love. It's to love the tea that you drink as you hold the cup in your hands and to love the step that you take and the pause in your walking meditation 
because your mind has spun out into some story or other, and you realize that it's good just to stop and stand for a while and recompose yourself. And the love that comes when you see the deer wandering about on the dry grass here. I saw an owl last night as I drove out. It's very rare to see an owl. They don't make themselves so visible. It was really exciting. Or the love of just your body when you take your seat and find a way to rest in it. Or the love of the breath. Say, well, what's lovable about the breath? But you know, the old Zen story where somebody says to the Zen master or the student, watching my breath, feeling my breath, sensing my breath, it's getting boring already. And Zen master, as they do, grabs the student and holds him underwater in the stream that goes through the monastery, <laughs> struggling for a long time, and finally he lets him out and says, so tell me about the breath, you know? <laughs> it's love. It's really a practice. Attention is a practice of love. So finding the way to calm and quiet yourself, looking for those moments in the body and in being, weaving in metta and loving kindness as part of mindfulness itself. Liberation is the liberation of the heart to love. And then allowing for your humanity. So Mullah Nasruddin went into the bank one day to cash a check. And they asked, could you please identify yourself? This is the Middle Eastern holy fool from Syria in Iraq. And he reached in his pocket and pulled out a small mirror and said, yep, that's me, all right. And in a way, being attentive to your breath, the breath becomes the mirror in which, because you become present with your breath and body, the rest of your humanity displays itself. And you sit here and you're a human being, a complex human being. One part of you, Buddha nature, rests in consciousness, eternity, timelessness, looks in the mirror and says, mm, I wonder how she's doing or he's doing. You know, That's the part that when you die will say, wow, that was, what a trip that incarnation was. You know, Wasn't that amazing? You'll see. You wait. But the other part, is the part that has your social security number, your family, your relationships, your body, your dreams, all of those things that are very, your, your history, that are very intimate to this particular life and incarnation and dance that you've been given. And they're both part of what you discover here. They live in harmony with one another at best. So, let me see where we are. I think I can do this. Once upon a time, there was a kingdom that had financial troubles and had borrowed far more money than they could afford. In fact, they were about to hit the national debt limit and the courtiers around the king and queen decided that there was so little money left that they would have to shut down the so-called government of that kingdom for a time. It was a tough time. And so they decided, what should we do? What should we do? And then they realized that, well, I guess we have to go where the money is. And it happened that the richest billionaire in the kingdom was a dragon. Dragons collect jewels and gold and so forth. The dragon had lots of money. What did they have to offer the dragon? Well, you know how it was in those days, arranged marriages and all. They had the princess. Beautiful princess. Dad and mom talk it over. Kingdom's in a pretty rough place. We're going to go insolvent. You know, our credit rating's going to drop. How about if we marry our beautiful daughter off to the dragon? We get all the money. We can open the government again. So... They decide to do this, and they announce it to their daughter. She is disturbed. It's not what she imagined for a wedding. But in those days, you know, you got to do what they tell you to do. So she begins to ponder and meditate, and finally, 
She decides to go seek out a wise woman, the old shaman who lives at the edge of the village, somewhere in the land there. So she sets out with her lady-in-waiting. And they finally get to the hut of the wise woman, and she says, I'm going to be married to this dragon. You know, you got to help me. And the old woman listens for a while, and she says, it'll be all right. She says, it's really going to be fine, but you just have to follow my instructions and do one thing. You have to wear... My instructions are about wedding gowns. Now, having been... Being the father of a daughter, I've learned about dresses. Okay? I thought the wedding was like about who you married and stuff like that. Turns out it's about the dress, but anyway, that's a whole other thing. So... She says, the solution is in the wedding gown. And here's what you have to do. You have to wear ten gowns, one on top of another. So the wedding day comes. They have the great big celebration, the trumpets, all the people come together. There's the dragon. There's the princess. They get married. They go off to the bridal chamber. And the dragon looks at her and says, well, I guess it's our evening together, dear. Um, and uh, she says, yes. And he says, would you, would you not get yourself ready for bed and disrobe? And she said, I, I will do so happily, but I would ask one thing of you, dear new husband, and that is that when I take off my gown, that you also undress each layer. So she takes off her wedding gown, and dragons being serpents, basically, they shed their skin, so he removes a kind of transparent layer of skin, no problem. Okay. And then he looks, and she's wearing a wedding gown. She says, oh, this is my next undergown. And she takes that off, and the next one off. And each time, he has to take off a layer. And at first, it's pretty easy. But then as she gets to the fifth and sixth and seventh gown, he's getting down there to uh, a little bit more raw material, right? But because he has claws and also because she's desirable, you know how it goes, um, he does what he's got to do. And he starts to pull off more and more parts of the, as she takes off a gown of dragoness. And wouldn't you know it, but underneath those ten layers that he pulls off is this handsome enchanted prince who'd been waiting to come out from the dragon. And of course then they fall in love and live happily ever after. And he, on the other hand, can even put on his dragon suit when necessary when he goes back to deal with the other dragons and the Wall Street bankers that are part of his portfolio. So you sit here, and there is, in the same way, a kind of unlayering. You calm yourself, you bring loving attention, and then the traumas that you carry, the Tension in the body. How many people had tension in your body today? Don't bother. Right? Shoulders, jaw, and so forth. Do you know why? Because you run around and then you get, you know, in conflict with something or you get uptight or whatever and it gets locked into your jaw or your shoulders, your back or something. We hold it in our bodies and then you sit quietly minding your own business and your shoulders start to hurt. Your back does, your jaw, and so forth. It's not that you're doing it wrong. It starts to open. And it's supposed to. Or, if you don't have that in the body, you get the unfinished business of the heart. The grief you haven't grieved because you've been busy and all of a sudden you realize, I'll never see that person again. Or, or the relationship that hasn't been mended for a long time that you really want to come back to. Or the... Um, the, the, the longing or the love that you never expressed or the creativity in the heart that's just waiting for you to listen to it. And so those layers start to open. And what do you do when they open? When the body opens, instead of fighting against it, you want to bring that spirit of loving kindness to the tension or the pain or the tightness or the tingling or the rapture if it comes. But when it's painful especially, you want to hold it the way you would hold a crying child. It's not like you're supposed to fix it, 
because then you're already in struggle. I don't like it. I want it to go away. I want it to be better. Instead, when a child's crying and it's not, you already changed the diaper and fed it. So it's like, okay, it's not something that you can fix. You hold it and it cries for a while and it feels held and then it softens and the body does the same. Might take a day or 10 or whatever, but it does. Or when the unfinished things or just the different waves come, you're sitting and you get sleepy, so sleepy. You know why you're sleepy? Because you're tired. You've been running around getting everything ready to come on this retreat. Sit down and finally your body taps you on the shoulder and says, oh my God, thank you. Time to go to sleep, right? In one monastery where I practice, it was called the poor man's nirvana. You don't judge it, you just bow to it, say, oh, this is the sleepy time. Every meditator has experienced sleepiness, you know, or you sit and you get insanely bored. I can't stand it. I'm so bored. Now, normally when you're bored at home, what do you do? Open the refrigerator, right? Or go online or something. One of those things in that addiction thing I just read. Because you can't bear to be with yourself because boredom or restlessness or loneliness or whatever is hard for you. Um, You believe the story, you get lost in it. This is Hafez. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deeply. Let it ferment and season you as few human or divine ingredients can. So instead of running away or trying to change it, you sit there and as if to bow to it, you say, oh, this is boredom. And then you feel your breath in the middle of boredom. Bored, bored, you can name it. Bored, bored. I'm going to die of boredom. It's terrible. Okay, dying, dying. wonder what's going to happen. The first person to die of boredom this fall at Spirit Rock. Dying, dying, dying. You know, Because the minute you say, all right, let me die of boredom, what happens? It gets easier, actually. Because the problem isn't the boredom or the restlessness or the sleepiness or fear or whatever. It's your resistance to it. And you say, all right, I'll die of boredom. It's really resting in the awareness itself. Say, oh, this is boredom. Show me what you got. Let's feel boredom. Let's feel loneliness. So here you take your seat with so much dignity and such a sense of liberation that you say, yes, let me open to humanity. And you do it for yourself, but you also do it for the world. This from James Baldwin, who writes, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly is they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so if we can't bear our loneliness or our fears, which will come, you'll sit here and fear comes, part of being human, or your insecurity, you're vulnerable. You're a human being. Humanity equals vulnerability. The poet Rilke says, ultimately, it is upon your vulnerability that you depend. That's like a koan for you. You can reflect on that. Because if you think that you're not vulnerable, it's folly. We need one another. We're vulnerable to the wind that comes across the Pacific from Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa that brushes over the Hawaiian Islands and that comes from Fukushima nuclear reactor area as well. We're vulnerable to the air that's part of the Amazon rainforest. We're vulnerable to how somebody drives on the other side of the street as their car passes us. We are interdependent. So if we can't bear witness to the vulnerability and the insecurity that's just part of being human, as Baldwin says, people cling to their hate and prejudice. They sense once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with their own pain. Then we project it on the communists on the Muslims, on the immigrants, on somebody who looks different or acts differently somehow. Because we can't really be true to our human lot, our human condition. You understand what I'm saying? So what you're doing is both profoundly personal and profoundly political at the same time. Now you sit here and your thoughts will kick in. And they tell you a million stories, right? How you're doing. 
this was a good sitting, a bad sitting, a good walking. I'm getting it, I'm not. I remember that other retreat. I read about this. And then you go into, when I get back, not just the retreat stuff. Yes, you'll tell people about your retreat, you know. But, oh, I've got to deal with that situation at work, or I've got to sort out that relationship, or I've got to deal with the money. And your mind, you know, it has no end to thoughts. It's a river of thoughts. In fact, the Buddha said, what you are is rivers. Rivers of thoughts, rivers of feelings, rivers of perceptions, river of sense experience. And when you sit quietly, you notice that the breath sensations are like a river, the body experiences flow. But thought, when you're in it, it seems so important, doesn't it? And so real and you know, you've got to finish thinking it and stay in it. Another poem from Alan Bass called Phone Therapy. I was relief once for a doctor on vacation and got a call from a man on a windowsill. This was New York, 20 stories up. He was going to kill himself, he said. I said everything I could think of when nothing worked when the guy was still determined to slide out that window and smash his delicate skull on the indifferent sidewalk, do you think, I asked, you could just postpone it until Monday when Dr. Lewis gets back? The cord that connected us strung under the wildly busy streets, the pizza parlors, taxis and limos, women in sneakers carrying their high heels, drunks lying asleep, that endless coiled wire waited for the waves of sound. In the silence, I could feel the air slip in and out of his lungs, and the moment when the motion reversed, like a goldfish making the turn at the glass end of its tank. I matched my breath to his, slid into the water, and swam with him. Okay, he agreed. It's kind of an amazing poem, at least for me. Here you are caught in this, oh, my life is over, the drama. Well, couldn't you just put it off till Monday when Dr. Lewis gets back? Okay. And one of the miracles that you see of mindfulness is you can be in the most elaborate thought construction. He did and she did and my life's over and I've got to do this and this one. And you know those constructions. And then you notice that you're taking a step or you feel your breath and you go, oh, thinking. You name it gently, a little bow to it. Oh, there's the thinking mind or the doubting mind or the worried mind, anxious. It's got all its story. And in that moment, liberation is yours. It's not that you get rid of it or judge it. You just see thought is only thought. It's like those bubbles that the Buddha described on the Ganges. Thoughts arise out of emptiness and vanish, leaving no trace. So, finding ways to calm and steady, looking for what is calm in your body, looking for the gaps and quietness and extending them, feeling the breath soften. Not because you're supposed to be calm or make it that way, but rather because you're stabilizing and relaxing and collecting so that you can be present for this amazing life. Bringing in love all the time, much as you can, even when you can't do it, loving the fact that you can't do it. Allowing your full humanity. Liberation isn't a release from humanity. It is the gracious witnessing that says, wow, here we are, look at this. And then a little bit of joy. It'll come more later. But we human beings tend to become quite loyal to our suffering. Know what I mean? That becomes part of the identity that we have. And the Buddha said there's suffering, there's causes, and there's liberation from it. And I remember when Thich Nhat Hanh, great Zen master, came here to first teach in California. And he visited the various Buddhist communities, the Zen Center and other places. And he shook his head. He said, I don't know what's wrong with you people. You're doing this practice as like a grim duty. Why don't you smile? 
said, in fact, if you don't start smiling, I'm not going to come back. Right? He said to Zen Center especially, you know, sit with a little half smile. Um, poem, where is that? Sweet little poem. This is from Crowfoot, who's a Blackfoot Indian. What is life? It's the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in winter time. It is as the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And life is so fleeting. It is. And tentative. And yet you get to have this magnificent dance. It is not a grim duty to meditate. Florida Scott Maxwell, the novelist, writes, no matter how old a mother is, she looks at her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. Right? And you can bring that consciousness. Okay, am I getting better and I'm improving? And it's like going to therapy and going to the gym and working out and going on a diet and now I'm going to meditate, right? I feel for you. Yes, it's hard, but it's not a grim duty. It's hard just because there's this huge kind of flywheel of busyness of thoughts and tension and so forth. And when you sit, it takes a few days to settle down. It's all right. You're coming back to your humanity. And the invitation is to live in joy, as the Buddha says. Live in joy in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. So you want to relax. Not relax as not be present but rather to take that quality of sweetness, of joy, of love, of attention, of care, and let your practice and your body and mind open like those layers of the dragon, release what they need to. And no, it's not, I mean, even the dragon puts on the dragon suit again sometimes. It's not like you're supposed to make yourself somehow, but you come back to a openness and a beauty that's always there in you and that gets lost sometime. We talk about it as teachers because we see it in you um, as the retreat goes on. The, the language that we've got for it is the Vipassana facelift. You know, by the end of a 10-day retreat, people's eyes are clear and they're walking around, you know, outside like they're a two-year-old again looking at a flower and marveling at the oak tree or the moon. And there's a kind of child of the spirit and an innocence in a beginner's mind. And even if you've practiced many years and many retreats, there's something so inviting and liberating and cleansing about continuing your practice as we are together here. And the mystery is not asking for you to fix it. The breath is shallow and deep. The mind opens and closes the heart, everything expands and contracts. Sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's pleasant. Praise and blame, gain and loss, those all change the worldly winds. You become loving awareness that says, oh, here we are sitting, walking, doing our eating meditation practice, really alive, free in the only place you can be free, which is now, the reality of the present. And this invitation is one of the most remarkable possibilities for you as a human being. As Alan Watts says, the art of living is neither careless drifting on one hand nor fearful clinging on the other. It consists of being sensitive to each moment, regarding it as utterly new and unique in having the mind and heart open and wholly or truly receptive. So this is a beautiful, difficult, powerful, 
Um, practice, way of being, and the invitation to a free heart, to the liberation that is your birthright, O nobly born, is here for you. So let's sit for a moment. So please go out and look at the moon, taste the night air, listen to the crickets, walk a bit, and then come back. We have a sitting in half an hour at nine. And even if you're tired, um, and it's fine to be tired. If you really have to go to sleep, it's okay, but it's not that late. You're not that old. Come on. you know. Um, even if you're tired, if you can, come back and sit. Um, even if you're nodding some, it's okay. And just give yourself to this to be present. Sit and walk and um, trust that it will open because it knows how to open quite well. All you have to do is just stay with it and bring your loving awareness to what's happening. Thank you. <laughs> 